Listener Production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. Paul Fuller, and for 35 years I was a news cameraman. For the thousands of times that I got into helicopters to shoot things with a camera from the air, um, it's just one, but it had this uh, thing about it that there was something indelible about it and it stuck in my mind. It's a weird kind of image. Yeah, we're about 1,500 feet, I guess. I forget what the minimum height is over the suburbs. About 1,500, 2,000 feet as we orbited around. And there's this body splayed in the in a driveway. The strange thing about it was um, that I knew the events that had led to this moment with this guy. And it had these very strange, exotic and slightly macabre sort of elements to it. He's a young guy who liked to pass himself as a kind of vampire. So it had all these kind of tabloid elements to it. But there was something kind of dreamlike about the the moment as we orbited around, because it was almost like something that someone would have written for a drama or something. It didn't seem quite real. As we come to the end of this story, I share the sense of unreality the news cameraman felt as he overlooked the scene. I've tried hard to understand who killed Shane and why. Yet I realise now, on one level, it doesn't matter who. Shane's demise was almost predestined. He was a doomed figure in a gothic fairy tale. When the story of the vampire gigolo hit the public consciousness, Shane fell into a slippery, steep-sided myth. A myth he created when he told Penny he was a vampire. And he had to die. He knew it was coming too. Though he didn't know who was stalking him. Of course the truth matters, and I believe it's still attainable. It could come from Penny, at least the full story of what happened in room 307 of the Hotel Seville. I think she knows more than she's let on. She's now living another life, a good and righteous one in the suburbs with a loving husband and kids. Why would she want to rake over these old coals? It could come from Mark Perry. He's a free man, but a man still chained to his past. I don't expect anything from the author, who'll probably be in jail until his death. There's nothing on the outside for him anymore. In 2015, Ange's legal team wrote to the author asking for help with fresh evidence that might help free him. The reply was not encouraging. When you initially requested an interview with me, I was quite taken aback and caught on the hop as I was in the middle of another meeting when your call came through. Of clear conscience, I said I would see you, and then I contacted my legal advisers, who, in no uncertain terms, advised me not to do so. I apologise for any inconvenience. I fail to see where and what area I can help in terms of new or fresh evidence. I'm aware of certain people in the underworld, also corrupt elements, who have endeavoured to fabricate such a situation, and also of people being approached to make false affidavits in relation to me, their contents being 100% false, all in the name of fresh evidence. 
He remains loyal to what he told the Briars investigators, that he was Shane's killer. I have testified truthfully in all matters that went before the courts. I have, under oath and in letters to the other departments, refused the discounted sentences in these matters and do my sentence in full. I feel you should know that if pushed on the issues you wish to raise with me on a professional visit, that negative aspects could be brought to light that would be of a highly detrimental effect on your client's cases and could lead down other paths that would be 100% sensitive to what your client would want. If I was pushed further, maybe more trials could come out of it. So, leave me alone. I've had enough. It's counterproductive and you're being used by the wheels of corruption. Respectfully, February 6, 2015. The Victorian coroner is the last legal venue where matters might be resolved. You'll recall from episode 7, I discovered there'd been a secret inquest into Shane's death. It was a blow to Peter Lawler and David Waters, who hoped the coroner might clear the cloud of suspicion hanging over them. I recently received a reply to an application for the findings, and it turns out I got that a bit wrong. There wasn't an inquest, merely an inquiry to determine whether further investigation was warranted, and the coroner found as follows. An inquest will not be held in respect of this death as a person has been charged with an indictable offence and the making of a finding would be inappropriate in the circumstances for the following reasons. The matters in which I must, if possible, make findings have already been identified in the criminal prosecution process. Section 7 of the Coroner's Act 2008 requires that I avoid unnecessary duplication of inquiries and investigations. In other words, because the author confessed to the murder, there was no need to ask any further questions. The case was tied up neatly with legal ribbon and filed in the oblivion of the court archives. The coroner's office had done its job and added finally, There are no relevant public health and safety issues raised by Mr Chartres Abbott's death. I wrote to one of Shane's legal team, not for any particular reason, but mainly to express the desolation I felt. I wrote, I must say the coroner's finding is the most profoundly depressing document in the many thousands of pages I've read on this case. Who is now left to advocate for Shane and his family? In this entire scenario, from the poorly investigated rape case, to Shane's murder en route to court, to the manufactured murder case that collapsed under the most cursory of questioning, the defeat of justice has been total and absolute. I guess if you live long enough, you see everything, or as much as you need to see. He wrote back, Dear Adam, the author and Evangelist Gusis murdered my client. And there the case shall rest. To go further would be to exhume the unpleasant truths that were buried with Shane, I suppose. I've come to understand he was a willing servant to our shameful desires. But like the vampires in the movies, he's never truly dead. He lives on in the things we hide from the daylight and the faces we put on when the lights go down. I can hear him in these lines from Leonard Cohen's book, Beautiful Losers. Come with me on a new journey. A journey only strangers can take. And we can remember it when we are ourselves again. And therefore, never be merely ourselves again.
The Trials of the Vampire is a real crime production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby. Fixing in Thailand by V. Intarakatug. Legal services by John Paul Cashin, Nicole Bishop and Taryn Wood. Finally, we'd like to thank all of our voice actors for their contributions. Listener.